Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. House of Cards, episodes one and two are the shows we watched this week. We broke the rules. Yeah. We broke the rules for Fincher, but we watched the first two episodes of House of Cards, which he directed. Levi, yeah. uh, tell us about the first two episodes of House of Cards. Majority House Whip, Francis Underwood. I can't do that. Takes you on a long journey as he exacts his vengeance on those he feels wronged him. That is, his own cabinet members, including the President of the United United States himself. Dashing, cunning, methodical, and vicious, Frank Underwood, along with his equally manipulative yet ambiguous wife, Claire, take Washington by storm <laughs> through climbing the hierarchical ladder to power in this Americanized rec- recreation of the BBC series of the same name. Thank you, Jacob Oberfrank on IMDb. Well, there you go. Why, yeah. Why, what did, uh, ambiguous? I don't know. <laughs> I think he meant ambitious, but oh. uh, I've just read it verbatim, so. I thought he was it. going for androgynous. <laughs> I don't think Robin writes that. Well, maybe a little bit. I just think that, yeah. I think that, yeah. We don't have to go into that. Anyway. <laughs> Too late. Take the dive. Um, oh, so House you, of Cards. Have you seen House of Cards? Have you watched this show? I have avoided it. I don't okay. know why. Well, I don't really have Netflix. I kind of yeah. steal it from people from time to time to watch things. <laughs> and just never... You know, for how much I enjoyed West Wing, um, I thought that this would be kind of up my alley. And I never picked it up. Mm. And I can see now that I... I don't know if this show would be for me long term. Well, I was able to see where I quit, which is episode 43. <laughs> so I made it 43 deep on this show. Which is, the se- the, episode, the seasons are what, 13 episodes? I think is they're that... 13 episodes. So I think that's the beginning of season four, uh-huh. I believe. Um, so question at the top of the cast here, how spoiler heavy do we want to get with the rest of the season? You know, I don't care i don't think the shocking twists and turns are what i necessarily need from this show i'm watching to see what i would consider a more a more rolled back version of essentially gone girl i mean this is a very ambitious couple Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. watching their malice yeah. And desire for power. That's what I'm going for. And occasionally they'll pull smart twists, but <laughs> I don't know that there's really... I'm not worried about knowing that stuff coming up. It's the delivery that really, I think, makes this show fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to separate it. What, we're breaking all the rules here, by the way, because Fincher directed these two episodes before Gone Girl, chronologically, in his filmography. Really? Yes. No way. So he, yeah, this this show came out in 2014, I believe, and then Gone Girl came out in 2015, I think. Uh, don't. Oh, you're it. right. Yeah, am I right? I missed that. Yeah, so that's why it's funny. It was funny to be in Gone Girl when Neil Patrick Harris was like, "Yeah, I have Netflix." <laughs> At his, like, luxury, you know, cabin. And yes, Netflix is kind of swanky, but really, like, everybody has Netflix. You don't have to be like, I have Netflix. But yeah, it was by kind 2013. Of fu- yeah, it was kind of a funny plug, because House of Cards was really the first net- Netflix television series that took off. Like, it was before Orange is the New Black, obviously before Stranger Things. Um, this was, like, the beginning of Netflix. It was a big news. It was really mm-hmm. big news when they were like, David Fincher is going to have a show on Netflix starring Kevin Spacey. That's big news. Yeah. Um, and it really started the whole kind of streaming TV revolution that has manifested itself in the most talked about series this year, which is Stranger Things. Yeah. Uh, this was kind of the beginning of all that. So, um, so we're breaking all the rules here because it isn't it isn't chronological and it isn't a movie, even though it's like what it was like two hours. Yeah, once we got through the first two episodes, I thought that was really it was fun to watch uh, a new to finally because out of all this list, I've seen everything except mu- the music videos of David Fincher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really got a kick out of seeing something from him that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Going into it with 
a season's worth of oh no, see with his filmography <laughs> at the our backs. Yeah. Um it was a ton of fun. Like yes. I, and I want to separate my I don't know that I'd watch continue watching this show. I think the characters motivation uh it's hard to relate. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think over time that would get kind of it'd get difficult. Right. But watching two episodes of it with David Fincher just doing his masterful work was a, it was a treat i really i'm glad that we hit this while we were going through everything. yeah i think that it's appropriate i just think it's it's you got to talk about it because a it is so groundbreaking as a television series streaming on a streaming service uh it was the first television series that dropped all at once like this that did never happen before um it's david fincher it's kevin spacey it's robin wright uh there's just a lot to um kind of take in with this and i think that it's really appropriate even though it's not chronologically in order i think it's a good tag and this is a bonus basically this is our bonus coverage for fincher i think it's a good thing to talk about it was really hard for me though to to watch these first two episodes and not just feel so much dread knowing where these people end up because (laughs) so much groundwork is laid in these first two episodes and i'll save spoilers for the end so listeners if you haven't watched the rest of house of cards and you'd like to um i'm not going to spoil anything huge until the end and i'll announce it when i when i want to start talking about spoilers but it was it was just like so many interactions were like oh shit like this is going to turn out so bad for you (laughs) you you really need (laughs) a little bit well game of thrones loses characters too fast Mm -hmm. to really yeah I guess have that same impact, but yeah, I can see how this show would really enjoy knocking people off as you oh. go. Well, and it's not necessarily knocking people off. I mean, one person doesn't survive the season. Another person doesn't survive the first episode of the second season. Uh, and then just a lot of other people's lives are completely ruined. Uh, yeah, that's one, what <laughs> one person will be thrown in prison. Uh, one person will have to go into witness protection. One person will have to erase erase themselves from the map. There's just like so many interactions in these for two episodes that I'm like, oh god, all of these people are. It's the worst for all of them. Um, but I will say that one of them becomes vice president, <laughs> and it's probably not the one you're thinking of. I can't even begin to. There are a lot of moving parts, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to. I'm scrolling down the list of names. I'm trying to find uh, the villain from Ant Man. Oh yeah, I was surprised Corey, to see him pop up. Corey Stahl is that his name? Yeah. Why is he not? This is Levi Surf's IMDb. Yeah. Um, this was I, this was the first thing that I ever saw him in. Um, and that was. Yeah. Is this what really kind of kicked? This is what kicked him off. Yeah. What about Kate Mara? Yeah. Where is she in the? I mean, she. I thought she was fantastic in this, but this is yeah. probably one of the earlier things. Yeah, this was the first thing I had I ever seen her in, her in, and it's you know it's obvious that David Fincher had worked with her sister Rooney on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, they're actually related. That's yeah. not a no. They're sisters. At this point, I don't assume that anybody with the last name actually is related. So yes. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So they're both. Uh, yeah, they're both doing their thing. David Fincher, fan of the. Fan of the Maras. Maras. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Corey Stoll. Yeah, that's his name is Corey Stoll. But yeah, this was like the first thing I saw him, and then he became the uh, villain in Ant-Man, and then he was also had a pretty uh, prominent role uh, guest starring on this season of Girls, which I started, by, started hate watching it, and then I just kind of <laughs> liked it. Now you're into it. Yeah. You know, we don't have to talk about girls, but okay. Sometimes it's just a little much. <laughs> Save that for your girls' cla- your girls' cast. I should do a girls' cast with my wife, because <laughs> she's the only reason why I keep watching that show. Because it's like I watch it out of like the corner of my eye. It's nothing uh-huh. to do with the craft of the show. It's just the characters are so awful. All of so them. this sounds like a hate watch still. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's you know. I stopped watching House of Cards as well because it kind of devolved into a melodrama that was well, so outrageous that I was just like, come on, guys. What we, it seems, 
more common now that we have a lot of TV shows where you don't necessarily like anybody. Right. In them. Nobody, yeah. I don't know what flipped that switch in the psychology of our entertainment, but. I'll, I'll tell you what's flipped the switch. A little guy named Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> he makes movies where all the characters are terrible human beings. You're going to give him credit for the modern. Yes, television trope of because everybody's all, a douche. It all started with the very first, with his first movie, Reservoir Dogs, nineteen ninety two. Like that was that was the beginning of everyone is awful. So deal with it. So find <laughs> so, somebody who's, who you think is interesting. I don't know. Um, I do want to. Well, let's get to the forums like right off the bat here. Yeah, because uh, we only got one post, so it'll be easy to get through the forums. <laughs> um. I you know obviously Jim and Aaron on the Bald Move Network have covered all of House of Cards so uh, if you want more House of Cards coverage it's all available uh, at baldmove dot com uh, and if you don't like us then you can listen to other guys talk about it because <laughs> you've got options <laughs> you've got options um, but uh, Ema forty two said can you guys talk about breaking the fourth wall I think Gone Girl was the first movie to have any sort of narration he did. And he's doing the fourth wall thing in this show. Is this a new Fincher trend? And there was narration in Fight Club. There was also narration in Benjamin Button. Yeah, um, not to this degree, but right. But, certainly, yeah, he but, certainly toyed with it. Especially, I think Fight Club was a really good mm-hmm. uh, pre uh, preview for this, where mm-hmm. it's um, he's narrating. He's and they use the the magazine article as this kind of trope of that's why he's narrating. I don't think Fincher narrates lightly. Yeah. Where some movies would, um, he all, it seems like he really does it with purpose. Gone girl. It's Mm -hmm. the diary. Right. Um, and it totally stops when we get to her. That's true. Yep. Benjamin, Benjamin button is also the diary. Oh yeah. 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 He likes diaries. Yeah. So do we get to the end of this and discover that this is all Frank Underwood's diary? Maybe. I mean, I just love, like, I like the fan theory that this is just his, like, nervous tick and everybody, like, <laughs> he's just saying all this shit out loud and, <laughs> and everybody just kind of ignores it. Yeah, whatever, Frank. Yeah, whatever, You're Frank. You're real lethal. This is, the, this is senile Frank Underwood. That's pretty, that's a good, I like that theory a lot. Yeah. Um, but it is like, it's also so much of these first two episodes is fourth wall breaking and he does it later on, but Frank Underwood, the character does it later on, but it greatly diminishes as the show goes on because the show does, as most shows do kind of, uh, we starts weaving away from Frank as the main plot device Mm -hmm. and like Claire gets a bigger role. Um, Doug Stamper, who is Frank Underwood's henchman he gets a bigger role uh newspaper kind of fades away (laughs) oh really Uh, yeah yeah um but uh but yeah there's more kind of machinations as things move forward so does anybody else ever break the fourth wall or is it only ever frank underwood i believe it's only frank underwood i'm i believe so i think i think it is only frank as far as i watched i maybe claire but I, i don't think so huh I, I just it was Frank. it is interesting and I, so I watched the first two episodes and then mm-hmm. it was a Saturday night and I just didn't want to go to bed yet so I watched the third episode just yep. to see what change and I absolutely noticed that the how the, when the how much the fourth wall is broken and how mm-hmm. effective it is not nearly the same and yeah. I think it has a lot to do with the something else I noticed was that just the camera work really stiffens up. When mm. we get away from Fincher, how yep. much, you know, the angle of the shots as dialogue occurs. Um, a lot of that, what they bring up in the every frame of painting about how he mm-hmm. shoots dialogue and changes the angle based on the dynamics of yep. power in the conversation. Yep. This was, this is such good material for that. And the first two <laughs> episodes are just per, you could just break those apart and talk about how Fincher does dialogue and you wouldn't yeah. have to touch any of his other material to do it absolutely and uh you know there's also a a lot of um well there's a lot of fincherisms in this in general but when you go to the power 
kind of the power moves that are done. There are just these really interesting power moves that are done toward the end of the first episode that are done really elegantly and really beautifully. There is the scene where Frank uh, brings Russo into the office. Russo is Corey Stahl's character mm-hmm. uh, and pours him a drink and says, you know, oh, I didn't get you ice. Did you want it neat? Oh, yeah, neat's fine. Um, and then Corey Stoll's sitting there with a <laughs> glass of scotch and Frank sits down across from him. He's like, oh, you're not drinking. He's like, no, it's a little too early for me. And all of a sudden, this power shift happens that is so great to watch. Like, in that scene, Frank kind of goes from almost like this little grandma character all curled up in the chair. He's got, like, his glasses on to, like, literally standing in front of Corey Stoll's character, towering over him and saying, the only thing that I want from you is your undivided obedience to everything that I tell you to do. Oh, Kevin Spacey is so good. He's so creepy, yeah. Uh, so that was really interesting. And then right after that, we go to the scene where um, Kate Mara is at the Herald. Mm-hmm. And she's basically pushing this uh, story on... Um, she's pushing the, uh, the, the bill, the education bill... Um, at the Herald and she's doing the same thing. This is her power move meeting where she's like, I'm now the boss. She walks out of that and she is basically the boss of the political reporter who sloughed her off earlier in the episode. Yeah. Um, so there's these two great power moves. And then we go to the inauguration and Frank Underwood says, power is a lot like real estate. It's all about location, location, location. However close, the closer you are to the power, the better. Um, and so it's like this these three great power scenes that just build on each other. It's really, really great. And the whole episode is filled with these one-on-one meetings between Frank and uh, the first time we see Frank and his wife, the first time we see Frank and Kate Morrow's character, Zoe, uh, the first time we see Frank with Russo. And it really does set up this kind of crescendo that this season takes. Um, yeah, the... You're talking about that scene with the inauguration. Another thing that I really loved about that scene specifically is if you watch the top lighting, he's talking about, you know, it's your proximity to power yeah. as a person. Everybody is so distinctly lit. Just the way that they hit everybody, that it really makes them stand. Normally crowd scenes, everybody kinds of tends to fall flat, mm-hmm. um, which they want it to just look like a big mass. This one everybody looks so distinct that you could pause it and catch everybody's face as you just scan the crowd. Like, you know, those people that, and they're not even people that are necessarily in the show, Yeah, but it's just this emphasis. Like all of these people are important and (laughs) there's only, and we're it because we're closest. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. It was great. I mean, just the, the direction, the setup, the the lighting, the editing. Yeah. Fincher is it's well, the, the, cool to see that he does so well in TV as he does in movies. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't expect anything less from him, honestly. Uh, you know, the the lighting in this is like, I feel like he's going dimmer and dimmer as time goes on. <laughs> like, he, he will break so many rules. He will dimly light a room and shoot in front of a bright window, which you're like never, <laughs> ever supposed to do, but he doesn't care. He'll put you in a dark, dimly lit a room for a cocktail ball and have an LCD screen with the American flag flying on it in the background, which is just like bright and everything else is, you know, mm-hmm. dimly lit and, and low. And it's so interesting to me how he pulls this shit off because these shots are still beautiful when they are basically wrong. They're You're not supposed <laughs> to shoot stuff like this. And yet he's still able to, bring out this really awesome beauty in all of these shots. And then when we do go outside, like we do at the inauguration, everything is so crisp and clear Mm -hmm. uh, in contrast to these kind of dark, dimly lit hallways that we've been going through. I feel like ever since the social network, you know, he he had this visual style early on. He had it in the game. Uh, He had it in in, um, Panic Room. Yeah. Um, But once he hit the social network, these kind of dark, dimly lit 
areas and spaces really started coming out. And I think that's when he started shooting digital, which I think allows you to shoot in dimmer light than you would with film. Yeah. And the way that he uses those tones, I mean, we talked about this a lot, especially with Guillermo del Toro, but one Mm. thing that caught me just really starkly was when he shoots Frank outside of Freddy's, the barbecue joint at breakfast and Frank's like eating his ribs and just like, just like (laughs) he's in his winning moment. And they talk about how cold it is outside. And the shot is crisp and blue and I was freezing mm-hmm. in my house under a blanket just watching. <laughs> like he does, yeah. he's just got a really good, he, he's able to capture so much in those tones. It's, he's getting temperature, he's conveying this environmental effects. And at the mm-hmm. same time, a lot of it is this kind of uh, story texture. You think about how much of under the Underwood's house is, this this really warm wood mm-hmm. it gives that sense of a an old house like an old right. wooden house that is very well done and very well main, maintained yeah it uh, it gives a sense of that uh of the legacy of washington dc yeah. i think that this uh this show really does use washington dc as a it's just an awesome setting um it skips over a lot of parts of washington dc that (laughs) aren't as opulent but it really does focus on kind of these the old boy network the the you know the pillars and the columns the roman architecture the i love the opening sequence of this thing i never skip the opening sequence of this show i always watch it all the way through get all those Um, lion statues yeah, and, and the time lapse, it's basically, it follows Washington, D.C. from the morning all the way into night. Uh, I love the shot of Nationals Park as the lights come on and it goes, boom. <laughs> um, you know, there's, it's, it's, it, they really use the city in a very interesting way uh, for the show. And you're right, the house, it almost seems like a haunted house. It's like so old and. Uh, you could tell that there are definitely going to be creaks in the floor, but at the same time, it's been painted over so many times that it has this glossy sheen to it um, and this real opulence in this, you know, basically uh, brownstone. So uh, I, I love the house in this in yeah. this show and their office. The DC it, it's a it's able to play a character itself in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and I think that. David Fincher was probably an architect in a former life because he's he is able to <laughs> so well capture yeah a lot of that architecture and how those buildings feel and he talked about it last cast his what's really impressive about how he lights things is it really does feel like how you would see things and right. I think in a lot of senses that architecture is you know we talk about it sometimes is it's uh, experienced in a state of distraction because you're going about mm-hmm. your life, even walking through the Capitol. Um, all this stuff is supposed to be inspiring, but you're t- especially if you're Frank Underwood, yeah, you're really focused on the mission at hand. And so all of this stuff is around you and you're not directly looking at it going, Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. But Fincher is able to capture it in the scene and be, he's able to set up shots so that, there's it really does make an excellent backdrop and he manages to capture what is usually spaces that are very ominously large in the terms yeah. of government buildings so well you look at a show like this and you contrast it with a show like veep or a show even like the west wing and this show the house of cards has a much like i i would say it has much more of an authentic feeling to it um because it does kind of celebrate the ornateness of government and how god it's just so crazy to me like that even even the fact that like the united states adopted neo-roman architecture as our like colonial uh (laughs) as our colonial architecture of choice it's kind of crazy to me that like everything like the capitol building looks like a building in rome yeah um and so there is this opulence and ornateness that goes along with the power, and that's really what the show is all about: is the power. Well, and it's um, an adapt. You're adapting. We talk about Fincher as an ad- adapter. That's what the idea behind it. I mean, you choose these ancient civilizations to mimic architecturally, 
uh, because they are powerful and people know mm-hmm. up and that power, hmm. you know, still is felt today. Um, and so you co you adapt it into your own form of government. And hmm. now you have some legitimacy without the, yeah. having the real history behind it. So, yeah. And yeah. And the, even the story is, this the story is adapted from, you know, from Britain. This is a British yeah. story about becoming prime minister, not, president so right i was reading a little bit about that and i'm really curious to go watch some of that just to see what it was like because apparently it was very popular for the 90s so yeah apparently it doesn't hold up too well um but it's also a lot shorter and it is available on netflix so if you type if you just search for house of cards both of the both of them pop up so you can watch the british version um just what i've heard from like aaron it doesn't really hold up uh, the, it just doesn't hold up from a from a craft standpoint. It looks like a poorly shot nineties <laughs> drama, shot and British because that stuff. Yeah, that TV typically ends up to look a little bit older than yeah than, I, than American yeah. TV. I think. Well, it's got that weird frame rate. Uh, Is that the, what makes it feel that way? It's the yeah, I believe rate? so. I think it's the uh, the PAL the PAL frame rate. In the United States, we use NTSC on video, so NTSC and PAL look different, and I think yeah. that's what it is. Because uh, yeah, there's that distinctly British looking, like the old yeah. Lion, Witch, <laughs> and the Wardrobe series, like stuff yeah. like that. It just it looks off. And some people thought that the new Hobbit, uh, the Hobbit series that was shot at sixty frames per second, I believe it was sixty, uh-huh. um, had that kind of look and feel to it. I've I didn't get to see it in 60 frames. I've heard yeah. that it has that, that there is a weird effect to it. So. Yeah, I watched it in 60 FPS, and I definitely got that vibe. Because it is so much clearer that it's, like, almost weird. Like, our as as an American audience, we've become so uh, acclimated to the flicker of 30 mm-hmm. frames or 24 frames a second that when you see 60, it looks, it looks it's like off-putting. Like you need the flicker almost. <laughs> does it feel like you're watching a stage play or something? Yeah, it's, it does. It, it, it seems more campy because it's so much clearer that it, it's like, it is, <laughs> it's like when you go into a play and you're like, Oh, that's a dude in a costume as a, it, it, it for me, it, it, it uh, hindered my suspension of disbelief. Because it did almost look cheesier, even though it was cl- clearer and crisper. Huh. So I don't Isn't know. Isn't that a weird? I, effect? <laughs> it is. It's really weird. Like you, 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 in some ways, you need it to be dim and uh, and flickering in order to uh, make it or, or you know ease along your suspension of disbelief. Now imagine Kevin Spacey looking like he's in your living room <laughs> talking to you. Did you well, know he's from New Jersey? New Jersey. I did not. I was looking up. I was like, is he from the South? Is this no, his no, original this is, accent? No, no. This is his. He's he great got, with accents. He's good with. Yeah. Uh, you should see. He does like a lot of really good impressions. He's good with accents. Yeah. he He's fantastic in this. He does a great job of being somewhere between Amy from Gone Girl and himself <laughs> in Seven. <laughs> I thought. Yeah. He's definitely the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> he's uh that's that's kind of his job is, is yeah. to always be the smartest guy in the room so what did you think of these character introductions what did you think of specifically i want to know about the first time we really get to see claire and uh frank interact now they they do interact earlier in the show like in the they're in they have a scene where they're in the back of a car together but mm-hmm. this is the first like deep scene that they that they have together and it's when um Frank has not called Claire post his meeting about the Secretary of State. Yeah, and he, he kind of left her hanging. He has his bad day. Yeah, and he comes home kind of sullen. Yeah, and she, you know, basically says, "My husband doesn't apologize to anyone, even to me." What did you think of their dynamic in this scene? Because their dynamic is basically what the whole series is about. Yeah, it's unsettling, and you get. They do, instead of a wake-up montage, I think Fincher mm-hmm. really loves to do just a set-up the character as soon as possible, just as fast yeah. as possible. And I think he's pushing himself to do it quicker and quicker. And we get it with that dog scene. Yeah. Uh, and so you already have the one side of Frank, 
And then when you see him come in upset and a little bit browbeaten, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the fact that she is, it feels as if Claire is dragging the dog killer back out essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's, I have no use for, for useless pain. Yep. And then he comes and he's like, oh, I'm sorry I didn't call. And she's just, yeah, saying a line like, my husband apologizes to nobody, even to me, mm-hmm. uh, as someone who is, I think, generally fairly <laughs> uh, modern. Um, yeah. That's a line that makes me uncomfortable in a yeah. lot of ways. Uh, well, that's And that's the thing about this couple. Like, they are, as the series goes on, Frank and Claire are... The, kind of the definition of a power couple and in many ways Claire is the source of Frank's strength and um she takes a back seat to him in many in many cases so that they can progressively get forward or not obviously not progressively cuz it's very patriarchal but it's she's kind of using him in order to uh to move forward in, in both status and power and then she gets kind of tired of that as the as the as the story goes on. Understandably, she is the kind of the strength and the rock of Frank Underwood, and they're both like pretty crazy people, though. Well, at the and that's same time. <laughs> when we get to the end of the second episode. Is it the second episode where he starts the rowing machine? Yes. Uh, I really loved the just how how clear she could be, and we get we're getting a lot of contrast with her at mm-hmm. her at the nonprofit yeah. just firing people with ju- just no problem whatsoever just clear as day just you're fired the, you're fired you're fired well but the Everybody true ruth- the true ruth- ruthlessness comes with making somebody fire 17 people and then firing them right after they do it which I'm not going to blame her for that. That seems like a great idea. <laughs> Put that all on somebody else, and then you just knock out one, and you're good. You for got, the day. You're an evil son of a bitch, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is literally like the worst thing you could do to a human being. And then I love that they have the scene right after that where she goes to the coffee shop, and like the the older lady can't operate the the um, register. Yeah. And she kind of sees like this world that she has flung this person into. Although I don't really buy that. I feel like if you've successfully run a nonprofit and you have a bunch of awards and you can get a recommendation, you'll you could probably find a, a job in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, you'll um, be just fine. You'll be just fine. People like experience. Yeah, um, I mean, fifty nine—it's the new forty nine. <laughs> I mean, out of necessity because people can't retire at sixty five anymore. Yeah. So backing up to the to the rowing machine, where you talk about her as his source of power. Yeah. I really enjoy watching the the dynamic of her pushing him. And this is where I think it gets very gone girl esque because mm-hmm. she's really clear with him. You should work on yourself. And yeah. he agrees, but on principle he can he doesn't want to be pushed into that. Right. Uh and then ultimately he follows through with that, which tells you a lot. And watch and seeing her watch him on the machine, mm-hmm. uh, that this is another power shot uh, that Fincher did, where she's coming down the stairs. You look down on Frank, and then she sits down on the stairs, and we're looking across at Frank. And so it's yeah, she is at once a little bit patronizing to him, but it's to draw out this equal, which is. A lot of what comes through in Gone Girl at the end when things really get bonkers because Amy wants that guy that she dated at the beginning. Right. And yeah. so as soon as she draws him out, which in her case requires a fair amount of murder uh, <laughs> and then a lot of lying um, and basically trapping Ben Affleck. It was only this one, one murder. It's, it it's was kind of like they murder. Came, yeah, but it was a real gruesome murder. I'm just saying. It wasn't accidental. <laughs> maybe we need to have a question as to whether one murder is a fair amount of murder. You know, I just watched Nice Guys last night, and there's a scene where they're questioning somebody. They're like, have you ever killed anybody? And the person goes, I've killed three people. 
And one of the guys goes, oh, yeah, okay, that's legitimate. Because one person, <laughs> that could be an accident. But when you get to three, you're really, you're it really to, tells yeah, people about you. to serialize. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, just watching that, watching the dynamic between the two of them, mm-hmm. I can see that being, especially for the first season and the second season, something that's very enticing that yeah. keeps this show going. It does. After three or four, at some point, I imagine myself disassociating from this psychopathy that they've joined in together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit like you talk with Silicon Valley. How many times do you need to see them succeed in the face of odds <laughs> after some very quick-witted moment uh, yeah. before it kind of runs along? So well, Frank Underwood in- will probably die in the end. Yeah, that's that's what I well I I haven't I haven't been to the end of the series. I think it's there's, there's still going to be one more season, um, at least. Uh, but uh, that's that's kind of what I got to. It wasn't actually that they kept on solving problems because they did solve problems in really interesting ways and really conniving ways, and the machinations of those were really interesting. It was just that the problems got a little bit too outlandish. Uh, it's, <laughs> they it's kept like, one upping. It's what a lot. It's what a lot of people had pr- issues with in the Dark Knight Rises. It's like once a nuclear bomb is being threatened, I think it's time to call in the military. I think Batman's probably <laughs> a, bu- uh, a little bit below his pay grade on that one. Um, but it it is. It's like when you're conniving and going behind the scenes and uh, impacting the Secretary of State confirmation. That's one mm-hmm. thing. Uh, when you are against all odds and unfavorable and are trying to get elected president and i'm like if they pull this off this is gonna be ridiculous um it just got the problems got too big for me Mm -hmm. and that's when it starts to slip in the melodrama because uh everything just seemed like it was happening to raise the stakes and the stakes got way too high to the point where it was like i don't really believe that any of this is possible (laughs) so and that's, that's that's ultimately where I landed with the show. That's why I only got forty three episodes in Levi. So I, a, I only spent like almost two full days of my life watching <laughs> before it got to outlandish. Yeah, you're good for two days. Yeah, and then and that's it's admirable that they can get so far in a show that this is the problem that I always thought the premise of Heroes was really good, mm-hmm. but they started with the super pow- like the super duper powers mm-hmm. immediately out of the gate and. Mm-hmm. That's always a problem with superhero movies mm. is that bar, if you raise it too fast, it gets uninteresting really right. fast. Because how do you create problems that are that you are willing to be tense about Yeah, when you have a guy who has so much money that he can build anything to solve his problems? You have a, a Norse <laughs> god that just throws a hammer at everything. And you yep. have a Hulk that's not even... He doesn't really Hulk in a truly destructive sense. He's fairly manageable. Um, yeah, what's when the whole idea manageable? of that character was that he was absolutely chaotic when he went, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I yeah, can see power, the show... It's a power creep. ...running into that, yeah. Yeah, it, in this show, I think it absolutely does. I Like, I, I assume that Frank did a lot of this stuff to get... Uh, the president elected. I can't remember what the president's name is in this because he's kind of inconsequential in the show. Actually, yeah, they don't really. I'm trying to think. I saw a picture of him like twice. I think yeah. in two episodes. So I mean, he takes a, a fairly larger role moving forward, but he still is fairly inconsequential because um, he's basically out of the picture by the end of season two. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So so. The I I want to see like the prequel to House of Cards. I want to see what Frank was doing before the show started because I assume he was doing all this political machinations around the election, which is what I'm really interested in. Um, so I and so I'd actually like to see a prequel before I'd like to see where we go with the show. Yeah. So I mean I think we're about forty minutes in, so I think we go with spoilers now. Yeah, so let's go. Sp- let's share it with me. I'm really curious to spoilers. hear about where the show goes, and you can save me the time. I just started Mr. Robot, so I think I'm <laughs> going to binge that instead. Well, basically, Frank, after a long, um, uh, 
after a long and drawn out process becomes vice president of the United States and then basically forces the current president to resign under scandal, which allows Frank to become president. And how far, what season is that when Frank becomes president? I believe it's at the end of season two. Don't quote me on that though. I think it is. I, I believe it's at the end of season two. So I think it takes like two full seasons to get to that point. Huh? See, and that's no, where I feel like you. Isn't that a good enough ending? I don't know. That's yeah. One thing I always hope with, especially with Amazon and Netflix doing a lot of their mm-hmm. own shows now, and that yeah, and the exploration that is occurring. I kind of hope that they start ending show serialized shows sooner. Yeah, like you can end on that most yeah. powerful president. He's won. That's I don't know that we need to keep going for yeah. three more seasons. Once he becomes president, it's kind of ridiculous because he then he's trying to enact, uh, you know, laws. It's basically two years in, so he's got a two-year presidency, and then he, um, and then he has to run again. And it's mm-hmm. actually a lot like Veep. It really does. <laughs> It really does kind of channel Veep in many ways, which I think is kind of funny. Um, but anyway, along the way, uh, Corey Stoll is killed uh, in a murder that looks like a suicide. Yeah, I'm not really surprised. Um, they basically uh, get him drunk and make him pass out and then lock him in his garage with his car. He's got uh, Kill Me written all over him in this show. Yeah. The person who I feel the worst about in this whole show is the, and you probably don't even think that she's consequential, is the prostitute who comes to Doug Stamper's room. Oh, really? The one that he gives $10,000 to. She pops back up? She pops back up in a big way because Doug Stamper like starts following her to make sure she doesn't talk because she is the key to this entire thing. She kind yeah. of knows everything. Um, but like no one can believe, no one would ever believe her because she's like, you know, she's basically low class and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but anyway, Doug like kind of becomes obsessed with her and then basically takes her out into the woods to kill her, but she gets the upper hand, she gets a drop on him and she almost kills him. Almost? Almost. We think he's dead, but he gets picked up in the middle of the woods, and then he goes through rehab. It, this is the thing. Like, it what? kind of... Be, like, I feel like I'm starting to talk about a soap opera here, and this is what House of Cards becomes. Yeah. Is <laughs> just a really well-shot soap opera. Something. <laughs> um, the other thing is that Donald Blythe, who is, like, the education guy... Yeah, that dingus. Yeah, the softy. Mm-hmm. He becomes vice president for Frank Underwood. What? What? Oh, because he's easily manipulable. Exactly. They put him in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nobody puts Blythe in a corner. Yeah. Uh, but the biggest thing here, and this is like the big bombshell moment of the show. This is like the thing. When you talk about House of Cards, when I saw this, I, my head exploded. Frank prestiges at Call of Duty. <laughs> yes. That was it. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, Zoe, who's... Kate Mara's character obviously yep. gets much closer with Frank in more intimate ways. Yeah, I assume that that this whole thing is just building up to that. But long foreplay in the first episode of season two, Frank murders her. What? Yeah, and he murders her by throwing her in front of a subway train. Okay, so That's this is one way to kill a person, I guess. This is the crazy thing about it is that. There is a scene in this first episode, or in the sec- I guess it's in the second episode, when Frank goes, you know, the all these all the information I've given you is just appetizers. Like you mm-hmm. are you are gonna get more and more information going forward. There they do that in the metro station in yep, DC. I that. And like right after she gets the realization that like this was just the beginning and now we are now we are really starting to get to the meat of it, a train comes through almost like out of her head. It basically comes out of the side of her head. <laughs> and it is like the most epic form of foreshadowing. I hope that it was all intentional. I assume that they had the the plot written out. Um, because watching it in that second episode is kind of mind-blowing. It's like <laughs> the scene basically where she signs the deal with the devil. And as she's signing it, a train comes out of the A metro train comes out of the side of her head. You see the form of her The her form death. of her demise. Yes. Yeah. So, 
But why? Why does he kill her? Because she knows too much. Super jealous? No, because she knows too much. much. Yeah, they start once he has the machinations in place to become president. They start cleaning out the cleaning out the cobwebs. Uh, So Zoe's one of those. The prostitute's one of those. Um, Corey Stoll is obviously one of those. Uh, They start they start knocking people off. Did they have to knock her off so she could go be in Fantastic Four? Exactly. I'm looking at the timeline here. Yeah, that's about the time the second season would (sighs) have. Yeah, it's it's a bummer, man. It's a bummer what happens to Kate Mara. And I hope she could bounce back from Fantastic She was in The Four. Martian. You know, she did good in that. She was in The Martian. She's coming around. I forgot about that. She'll be just fine. Um, But there were a lot of really cool correlations, I feel, between this show and Fincher's other work. I think that we, we start to see these kind of themes. Like, Fincher loves to shoot a dirty house or a dirty apartment. Yeah. Uh, and he does it in a really interesting way. Like when Ro- when Russo goes to the conspiracy theory dude's house, like I cannot, it reminded me of the house in Zodiac that was full of yeah. squirrels. Right? I was just, yeah, I was just crazy for trailer. A, yeah. I was just waiting for a, a squirrel to pop out. <laughs> um, it was like That'd a cross. Pinterism. Yeah. It was a cross between the squirrel and. And the squirrel trailer and the uh, the killer's trailer in seven. It was like a cross between those two things, and yet he makes it a space that's like inviting and that you are interested in as a viewer, <laughs> and you're not just like re- completely repulsed by. Yeah. Um, I was like, don't drink out of that glass, dude. That glass is not clean. That glass is definitely not. You now have some sort of sexually transmitted disease. From a glass. Yeah, Do well, think... he does He does frequent prostitutes, so I don't think he's too worried about that. <laughs> He'll never know where it came from. Yeah. Do you, it's weird because Fincher does such a... We talked about, you know, he loves to do bright lighting mm-hmm. in the background and then dim lighting in the forefront. Yeah. Most of his trailers, he really buttons them up mm-hmm. when he's shooting inside. Yeah. Which is a... And you talked about the, the inviting nature. And I don't know that the Zodiac trailer certainly gave that vibe but this one right. does um it really does make what is typically a very uh oh you know because the windows are so close by closing mm-hmm. them in he really uses trailers to be as claustrophobic as possible and whether that's right. inviting in this <laughs> homely cave sense or right. really creepy in like bear cave sense in <laughs> zodiac uh, yeah it's almost like a if you wanted to akin, if you wanted to do something akin to fantasy, it's like this is him like going into the troll's lair to give him gifts and get the information that he needs. And yeah. like e- the troll even has like a princess in there that <laughs> that he's captured, <laughs> and like that's kind of Corey Stoll's you know venture into the into the cave to get the magical flute or whatever whereas yeah. in seven it's basically just entering the dungeon <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just the full of skeletons oh, we get a couple and then that basement scene that was the real that the basement the, scene in zodiac fu- yeah for yeah. a scene that had uh really was a red herring mm-hmm. uh, that was final boss level creepy and <laughs> david fincher you can leave me be yeah uh and then i love this scene of all the kids working on the bill like, yeah, <laughs> it was it was so great on a number of levels. One, it's like these are the people who are writing your bills. Mm-hmm. Are like a bunch of Yale uh, grads who are aides, and they are the ones who are locked up locked in, this in room. a room. <laughs> but it, and it was crazy that they actually fucking locked them in there. Like it, I thought they were going to be like hypothetically locked in the room, like they could go out and shout. No, 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 no. They got to wear those those non breathable slacks. <laughs> and poly fifty fifty polyester shirts for like six days in a row. Yeah. Um and I and then, and the seed really reminded me of the social network though in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, because we get that especially with the programmers in the and he's he's in the zone. Or yeah. what was it? He's uh tapped in. I'm trying to think what the term mm-hmm. was they used. Locked in? Um Yeah. It's it's that same mentality that the most work gets done when you're honed in. And I wonder a little bit with the intensity of Fincher's work, 
What I can't imagine. He must have assistants like that that he <laughs> ritually abuses in that fashion <laughs> to one degree or another. Yeah, I thought that was. I just love like how that breeds so many emotions as a viewer. Like you feel sorry for the kids, but you're kind of proud f- for them, and you kind of resent them. But then you're also <laughs> kind of like rooting for them. And I love the quick wit. Um, like the kid, you know, Frank's like, "Do you need anything else other than deodorant?" And the kid goes, "Conjugal visit," yeah. <laughs> and Frank just like gives him a look. But I think Frank on the inside was like, "All right, that's pretty funny." Yeah, that was good. You did good. <laughs> you did good, kid. Also, have you? Did you notice the monitor? This is we're we're uh we're going off the rails here a little bit. In Don Blythe's office, he had a monitor that was like the size of a. I don't know, two microwaves stacked on top of each other. Did he have Did like a CRT? This? Yeah. And it's 2013. Yeah, but that's probably, I didn't notice it because in my mind, those things are no longer anywhere in the world. It blows my um, mind. And I'm glad that we never have to move one ever again, <laughs> whether it's a TV or a monitor, those things. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to use one as a boat anchor that's someday how they... just to make a point with Lincoln. <laughs> That's how they. Uh, that's how they emotionally tied you to those devices. Is they made you hug them when you moved them around. <laughs> yeah, it's the only like, way to drop it. Don't it. drop it. Don't drop it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was. But I thought that was not. I thought it was interesting because obviously everybody else in the show has flat screen monitors. But like this guy Don Blythe is so stuck in the past. And yeah, he's, got he's this such giant a goofball. He's yeah. so outside the game. Yeah, and they make a big point out of how he's been working on this policy mm-hmm. for twenty five years. That I imagine you can just keep banging that drum for quite a while to make him out to be a doof. Um, yeah. which has which has use. I mean, you need those, you need the full range of characters for Frank to play with because uh, without it, I think Frank, you need to see him manipulating a variety of people types. Mm-hmm. For it to maintain interest, so you got to yeah. have a buffoon in there somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, he's not—I wouldn't call him a buffoon. I just call him an idealist, and Frank even calls him yeah. that as well. Mm-hmm. Like he is a political idealist, and there's a time and a place for political idealism because that's kind of how progressive—how progressiveness happens—is that we rally around idealistic. Ideas. I mean, it could also become regressive if you rally around regressive ideas. Bad ideas. Yeah. Um, but it's it's that that real big tug of war between idealism and reason. I mean, that's something that we see a lot in the political landscape today. So I like to see that represented in the in the show. Yeah. Itself. Another thing that always kind of cracks me up is when people who are news people show up in movies playing themselves. So, like, George Stephanopoulos yeah. in this. And there's a couple people from CNN who also pop up. It is, it's hilarious to me because they are so good in these roles that it, I feel like this is Fincher, like, winking at the audience and being like, because, you know, Gone Girl was such an indictment of the media in many ways. Mm-hmm. That movie, like, was it's much about an indictment of the media and the hysteria around tr- tr- tragic events than it was about the, you know, the psycho at the center of the plot. But I feel like this is like a wink, a winking, um, n- like knowing thing that, that Fincher's doing. He's putting news people into a fictional show and having them play themselves. So you could see that they are believable even when they were just completely bullshitting fiction oh. at you. Yeah. I mean, because George Stephanopoulos, he's he's perfect. He's great in this show. And, of course, he's going to know how to read questions on television. Yeah. Because that's his job. Mm-hmm. But it is this thing of, like, these people are just talking heads. You can feed them whatever you want, and they they come across <laughs> as believable. So maybe, maybe think about that. Dark take. But, I mean, you're right. That's If if that is his intent. Uh, yeah. And sometimes I think it's just the 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 joke of it you know yeah. having re- i always enjoy seeing anderson cooper show up in a like a I, who is i'm trying to think of what he was in but he pops yeah. up every now and he again. pops up every now and then and but that's the thing about it is i really feel like if you are a serious news person you should not do fictional t- 
television. You should not do yeah. fictional entertainment because it delegitimizes you. And maybe in today's world that doesn't matter. But at one time there was something called journalistic integrity. <laughs> and at this point, hold on, I gotta drag your soapbox out here. Yep. At, okay. <laughs> at Go this ahead. point. This just is like further exposes that these people will just read whatever's in front of them. And yeah. maybe we shouldn't let them kind of dictate the way we feel about things because they can, I don't think you're wrong. I think that's a they're professional true, manipulators. That's a very solid statement. It's it is. It's we shouldn't be joking with something that we really take we should yeah. be taking much more seriously. And I love the scene in this when they're watching the interview with the Secretary of State dude and George Stephanopoulos. And it's Doug Stamper and Frank Underwood, and they're in his office. They're watching it, and they are just like loving every minute of it because yeah, he's perfect, he's, perfect. And you know, I he uh, there's a line that Frank says. He says it's too easy. It's too easy to manipulate the media, and I feel like that whole idea gets permeated through Gone Girl. So yeah. I think that there's uh, something that. Fincher's trying to say here it's very similar to also what was happening with Zodiac I feel like there was kind of this idea that was permeating through Zodiac which which was talking about the hysteria that the that the media uses to sell advertising time like how do you make mm-hmm. the news interesting make people feel like they're gonna die yeah <laughs> that they'll watch you're gonna die find out why at 6 30 <laughs> well, <laughs> well and it's they, you know they're their narrative is strong, and that's yeah. the the danger is that they get to set. Yeah, and Frank makes a perfect. He all he had to do was laugh. All they had to do was yep. get the the guy that was going to be Secretary of State to laugh about the Israel, and it was mm-hmm. it's a natural defense reaction, which yep. is unfortunate for him. Yeah, but because the media just jumped on it, pounded it, asked people about it. After that, you're that's all it takes. It's just yep. once. That's and all it takes. Our our political scene is going to be this way for the rest of our lives because now we have everybody they're talking about a newspaper article he may have written we go back and dissect a politician laughing at any given point in their career and you can turn that into a story at the right time oh absolutely yeah and that's the scary thing about frank's statement when he says remember this moment when you told me there was no story Mm-hmm. And he yeah. just has this uh, this prescience to know. He just knows how you tweak those dials just a hair to the left and boom. Yeah, but you- he was also being straight up just 100% manipulative with her at that point. And yeah. I love how she goes to the meeting and she just parrots everything that he said. Yeah. And that's where I think yeah. I'm not necessarily surprised that he killed her and that her character dies off. It's yeah. it's a bummer because I think it could be a very long-term interesting character that could be relatable compared to Frank. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, if all she's going to do is just be batted around <laughs> by him, that's going to get really boring really fast. So, well, the throw really her in front sa- of a train. <laughs> the other thing that's really sad is her boss, he gets thrown in prison. I don't feel bad of that. Good. I, after the way he treated her? Great. No, he gets... Why? The old guy? The hammer? No, 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 no the curly-haired guy. Oh, oh, that's that's less fun. He gets thrown in prison. He gets framed, thrown in prison, and he gets out because he gets his cellmate to confess about some, like, Armenian gang ring. What? <laughs> and th- so then he has to go into witness protection, which is basically prison. You just can't, you just aren't allowed to buy milk. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, they go through the whole witness protection. So, so his life is completely ruined as well. Basically, everybody's lives are ruined by Frank yeah. Underwood. Good job, Frank. So I do want to f- kind of end on this because the, the episodes began and end with this. I thought that the the man chained to the post at the end or handcuffed to the post yeah. was so reminiscent of the dog at the beginning. Yeah. And because they were both going through this unnecessary pain right and that's this yep. idea that or useless sorry not use not unnecessary useless pain and so it was frank both putting them out of their misery basically and he yeah. does it by killing the dog and he does it by basically deflating the guy bumming the guy out really bumming him out and just say you know nobody's nobody is listening to you nobody cares about you uh, so just go home. 
Yeah. Um, so I thought that it was just a really cool thing having no knowing that Fincher directed both of these episodes that their book ended in such a way and I feel like he does set up the characters really really well in these first two episodes and the show is enjoyable I would say watch through the end of season three I think that season four basically just got a little too wonky for me I'm all for I bailed shows that were on like West Wing totally bailed before I think it was the sixth season or the Mm. fifth season where it goes off the track so I just bailed after four and I was okay with that all right, folks. Well, that is our take on Fincher's takes. Uh, we have one more podcast that we'll do. We'll do a wrap-up cast next week, and then we'll take a little break ourselves uh, until we figure out who our next director is going to be. Um, so please send your uh, kind of ideas or theories or through lines through all of Fincher's works. You can send those in to directpodcast at gmail.com or go to forums.baldmove.com. There'll be a forum there for our epilogue on Fincher, which we will record next week. It'll include a top, whatever it is, nine list? Uh, we'll rank so. We'll rank all of his films, and we'll leave out uh, House of Cards. Um, yeah. But we'll rank all of his films, and uh, you'll get Levi's uh, rank, you'll get my rank. and It's always cool to see the listeners take us as well, uh, since you've taken this journey with us. So please do that. Forums.bombas.com, directpodcast at gmail.com. And until next week... I'm Eric. I'm Leva. Cut.